0: But it has to have plenty of salt on it. Number three. My first car was an MG. Now, one of those three wasn't true. Which was it? You think it's the potatoes? Who's going for the potatoes? Okay, I'm just going to go. Judge Mears found. I adore baked roast potatoes. Okay, what's another option for which one you think was the lie? The MG. Sorry. Sybil had it, and then I got married to her. It was my first car. I was not, honestly, I was in a band, but we were awful (laughs) and everybody knew it. (laughs) You you, you remember that one? (laughs) There you go. Isn't it interesting though? You know, you can have some fun with a thing like that. But at the same time, truthfulness is something that when it gets undermined, it really sets you on edge. It's unsettling. Isn't that why we found the American election in 2020 so disturbing? Because in attacking the whole system out of peevishness that he didn't win, it really undermined a lot and could potentially do a lot more damage Isn't that why we find it unsettling when somebody has lied to us? We then still not Particularly because more can ride on it. So what about the truth of what we talk about in here? How critical is it? Well, for the Thessalonians, it was immensely important. It was either true was either something you could take a confident stand on or it was a disaster. As we open the second half of 1 Thessalonians 2, we're going to dig into this idea of not just truth but the questions around truth. And what do you do with the counter-truths that were being thrown out, the opposing stories, the, no, this is the truth. Do you just do what our world does today and say, well, they're all true? I don't know how that one works, but there you go. If we're going to do this, we need to ask God to be at work in us, through us, as we open his word together. So would you join me in prayer as we prepare to open up God's word together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, thing that we need, so that we can know you better, love you more, and please you in all that we do. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you lived in the Greco-Roman world... Well, lots of people had things to say. The philosophers of that era, particularly Greco-Roman philosophers, would vent their opinions on things. They were fairly famous for it. They would get a following, and the following would get them an income. That was the way it kind of worked. They would stake their claims, people would follow them, and they'd get an income, and they would tell you stories. It's many of the philosophers who are the originators of some of the stories that we have that we love to hear about, you know, Hercules in his 12 tasks. Where do you reckon that comes from? As they pondered the gods and told their stories. And then along came Paul into the Greek city of Thessalonica and he talked of one who had risen from the dead. Another story? Let's pick it up in verse 13. We also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. When he talks about the word of God, he's using it actually in a reasonably tight way here. He's talking about the message of the gospel. He's spoken about it in a few ways as we've run through the letter. I'll invite you to read through the previous chapter and a half and you will see that that this is how he's talking about the message he came with, the gospel he came to present, the message of Jesus, who is Israel's Messiah, who is crucified, who rose, who takes up our sin. This is the message that the Apostle Paul came to Thessalonica proclaiming. And when they heard it, they responded to it, says Paul, not as a human word. They didn't think this is another philosopher telling a story. Because if you look at what the philosophers tell their story story's different. You can get one story of Hercules and another story of Hercules and, and they're, they're different. Because they kind of did. Is this another story? Well, the Thessalonians said no. They did not accept it as a human word. This is not simply the, the venting of another philosopher keen to earn a buck. This is the living and active word of God. And Why is it important that he talks about the gospel in those kinds of words? Why call it the word of God? Well, the word of God has echoes of power in it. In chapter 1 of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, God speaks And in speaking, creation rushes into being. This is a word of power, a word that creates, a word that transforms, a word that shapes. And sure enough, what does Paul say? say, Well, when you received it, not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is now at work in you who believe. The word of God is powerful, it transforms, it shapes. So Paul's logic here is that when he came to the Thessalonians, he was talking about what God had revealed, so that the words of the gospel are the words of the living God, and they're powerful and they transform. It's really important for us to grasp this because there is an alternative narrative, both in the secular world and, sadly, in the church, about telling our stories. And I like your story. I also like this story. And I like that story. And you've got your story. And I've got my story. And even that bird's got its story. And sadly, I've just got to tell you this. The other day we came in here, first people into the room. I disabled the alarm to walk into the building. And just as I took a step away from the panel, I heard this bang. We thought, who's inside here? And why haven't they set off the alarm? And came in and there's this um, kookaburra going, ooh, in front of the window. (laughs) Poor thing. Recently, uh, on the 2nd of July, uh, at the cathedral in Brisbane, there was a sermon Uh, He's called on by God to take his son Isaac, the vessel of his promises. He'd said that his promise, remember the great promises of chapter 12, that God would build a great nation from him, that he would uh, bless him through him all, the nations of the world would be blessed. And and God was quite specific as Abraham tries to take control of that promise and bring it about and you end up with Ishmael. And God says, no, I'll give you the vessel of that promise. It's Isaac. And then God says, I want you to take Isaac and sacrifice him. That's a very confronting passage. Not the least for Abraham. Not the least for Isaac. But this is what was said in the sermon. Abraham lived in a world where gods were angry and demanding, a world where gods commonly demanded sacrifices, a world where angry, demanding gods needed to be appeased with blood, often human blood, where gods commonly demanded the most precious things to be sacrificed, and this for most people meant their children, a world where if you do not do what your God demanded, then you would not receive forgiveness, you and your people would not be blessed, you and your people could not thrive." Abraham lived in a world where it was not unusual for fathers to take their sons up the mountain, but it was very unusual for a father to bring his son back down alive. Imagine being the father who didn't make the unexpected sacrifice to rescue his people. Abraham was taking a huge risk. Have you noticed the shift? You really notice it in the next one. It is important that we remember that we still need to learn, we still need to discover, to rethink, to consider what we believe and how we perceive God to be. That was the thrust of the sermon. Hence the title, The Evolving Understanding of God. What's absent is revelation. What's absent is the idea that there is a word from God. This is as one person put it, and man made God in his own image. In the image of man, he created him, insipid and useful. How easy it is to fit in with a culture who don't want a divine presence in this world, save one that can bail them out when they're in trouble, if you get rid of the idea of revelation, full when you need him and absent when you don't. The Thessalonians did not receive the gospel as a human message. Not like in this sermon, the, the story, as the preacher sp- speaks about the, the incident in Genesis, talks about it as a story that Israel told to explain why their thinking changed. What does Paul say? The word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is. The word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. Friends, the fact that we have a God who reveals, a God who speaks, a God who's, uh, when we open the scriptures, we are hearing God address us, changes how we interact with that. This isn't the time to sit there and say, oh, I don't like a God like that. I like a God like this. That's the God you write. That's the God who's as useful as a God made of plasticine who can sit on your shelf and smile at you because you put the smile on his face with your fingernail. And yet so tempting and so often you hear those words. God, I believe in isn't like that. The God I believe in, like this. Honestly, who cares what God you believe in? Seriously. Surely the only thing that matters is the God who is. And if your God is different to that, it's called delusion. The Thessalonians are being transformed because they heard the word of God and realised it, what it was. This message about Jesus changed everything and it started changing them. And friends, can I encourage you, as we open God's word, treat it as revelation. That means you sit under it, not over it. You ask, how do I need to change, not how do I need to fix it so it conforms to me? How we read the Bible is we read it as the living word of God, as a word we can... And it changes why we read. Too many Christians, we who have the living, powerful, transforming word of God, leave it too often closed and on our shelves, don't we? Now, the first place that we encounter this unsettling question about the truth, we rejoice, as Paul does, that the Thessalonians, I'm getting tongue tied, aren't I? That the Thessalonians received that word from God, that gospel, as it truly is the word of God, the powerful, transforming word of God. And that is why Paul is able to then talk about the privilege that they enjoyed because they received this word as the word of God. They had an immense privilege. They got to suffer. It's actually one of the hardest things in the New Testament is that it keeps using those two words together, privilege and suffering, because we don't like them anywhere near each other. And you know what? I don't think they like them anywhere near each other in the first century either. became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews. in embracing the truth of the gospel, just as the first hearers of the message of the resurrected Jesus embraced it in Judea. They join with them and just like the first hearers experienced persecution, suffering from their own people, So the Thessalonians join with them. Now, one of the things that's been sad about this passage is that people just go over the top and see it. Sadly, some some people have seen this as an excuse for racial profiling around Jews and anti-Semitism and all that ugly stuff. And that has happened over the centuries. And it is awful, because that is not what this is saying, because if all Jews are banned, well, given that he says that you suffered the same thing from your people, presumably that means everybody else is banned as well. Because your people weren't Jews, not all of them. No, the issue was that there are those in Thessalonica who, like those in Judea, responded to hearing about the message of the gospel not with joy not receiving it as the word of God not being transformed by it but reacting in rage in hostility we need to be careful that we keep going in that sense this is why I made sure I put the three dots on the bottom even though that's the end of the verse you suffered from your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drew, also uh, drove us out. Paul, a Jew himself, knows that God's people, Israel, had had a long history of having those in their midst who instead of... Rejoicing in the word of God, opposed it. The phrase, the, 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 the reference to killing the prophets goes back to Elijah. As Elijah finds himself complaining to God and saying, These people that they've killed all the prophets, I'm the only one left. God has to remind Elijah that that's not true. He's not the only one left, but yes, they did. And there is a reality in taking that stand... And that's a stand that isn't unique to the first century and it's not unique to the Jews. It also happened in Thessalonica amongst Greeks. It has also happened in many places in this world. If you go and proclaim Jesus in the north of Nigeria, you will experience what that is. If you go and proclaim Jesus in North Korea, you'll very quickly experience what that is. There are many places in this world today where you would know this very, very intimately. A people who respond to the proclamation of the glorious word of God with rage. And it can be fearful and it can be intimidating. But Paul wants to remind the Thessalonians not only of what they've done in receiving the word, not only to commend them for their ongoing relationship that they have persevered, but also to encourage them to keep going. To not be daunt these who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove out the disciples—they displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. For the Jews, it was a particularly offensive thing that God's great promises weren't just for Jews. How could you proclaim those promises to Gentiles? How could you proclaim those promises to people who aren't Jews? It was offensive. And sure enough, that's the reaction that they had as Paul goes into the synagogue in Thessalonica and proclaims the gospel, tells them about Jesus. Some there, many, a number believe prominent Jews, Gentile God-fearers who were there listening, some of the leading women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd, be kind of spirited out of the city, goes to the next place, goes to Berea, explains the good news in the synagogue, and people received it. What happens there? But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds, stirring them up. The gospel is not unopposed. And there are those, both in our secular culture and those who call themselves the people of God who vent their rage on the proclamation of the Lord Jesus and those who would partake in it. But Paul's warning is not for the Thessalonians. He describes it to the Thessalonians as a kind of privilege because in in, in what they're experiencing, they're standing in good company. They're standing with the very first believers They're standing with the long line of the faithful of Israel. They stand in the line of those who've heard the word of God and responded to it as the word of God. The warning Paul gives is about those who reject, those who vent their rage. In this way, says Paul, they will always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. A bit confusing at the end there, hasn't it? Do you, do you see it? It's a bit confusing. The wrath of God is normally something that's referred to in terms of the end. That, that day when God comes in his wrath. The day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. And here he talks about it as though for... For these people, it is a past event. I would be lying if I said to you that this was easily answered. This is been described as actually a very difficult one of the most difficult verses in the Paul's ever written. I want to give you a couple of thoughts, but as I give you these thoughts, I'm giving them to you as possibilities. One of them, it goes back to Acts 13. When Paul and Barnabas were in Pisidian Antioch and preaching the gospel in the synagogue, they were rejected. The message was opposed. This was the response. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In a sense, it's possible that Paul is actually saying that there is a privilege... That is, there's no more. Now, Paul still goes to the... It's still his practice to go to the synagogue first. It's still his uh, proclamation that the gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That the, that the historic people of God have a place of dignity. But also in Acts 13, there's a bit of a sense of judgment in Paul effectively wiping the dust from his feet as he goes from the synagogue To the marketplace to speak to the gentiles that's one possibility perhaps it's nothing so specific perhaps it's more like what john talks about well in chapter 3 so many of us know god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then John goes on, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Like the person who rejects the rescue, there's a sense in which they're left in judgment Perhaps that's what Paul's talking about. Whatever it, the specifics of it is, I, I think the message is clear. The rage that is being poured out is the rage of the defeated, not the rage of the victorious. The message that people would have us watered down to is a defeated, powerless, empty message. The message that is palatable to the non-Christian world is empty and powerless. We heard one discussion on the weekend of a of um, two ministry, they were friends of the speaker. Uh, And one had gone on into, into good evangelical ministry. The other one had kind of decided that actually some of these convictions needed to be abandoned. And he talked to another friend and said, you know, what do you think of this? He said, well, I far prefer that guy's church, pointing to the one who'd abandoned his convictions. He said, would you go to it? No. And that's actually what the statistics are showing. That when you abandon the gospel, it actually doesn't have any power, any fruit. It doesn't make your church more palatable to the world around you. It actually just gives them a good reason to stay at home. Has anybody seen this movie? I love the movie. It's, it's kind of fun. It's a very interesting story because it's like a lot of the... The movies that this director was particularly in his early years made has a very serious side to it. Because it's set in Nazi Germany and a young boy who idolizes Adolf Hitler to the point that Adolf Hitler is his imaginary friend. But it's also set at a time when the Nazi war machine has broken. when the war is being lost. But the rhetoric is still strong. And not only is the rhetoric strong, but the clampdown, the the crushing of anybody who would put any um, picture of what it's going to be like that differs from the Nazi rhetoric was crushed. A time when the Holocaust reached horrific new highs, lows. In the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, an empty message that we make our own God who does whatever we like that message was shown to be completely and utterly bankrupt. And its day of doom has begun. Because the one behind that message, and Paul is quite explicit as to who is behind this stuff, he says the real enemy here, well, let's pick it up in his words, Verse 17, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. As Paul strove to reconnect with the Thessalonians, he was being driven away by the the violence, by the hostility of those who were pursuing him. But he saw behind that the enemy not just of Paul or the Thessalonians, but the enemy of the gospel, Satan himself. That's not something unique to the situation in Thessalonica you can read through those messages Max was talking about in the beginning of Revelation, the messages to the churches. and For instance, verse 9 of chapter 2 of Revelation, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know all about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That doesn't mean that there were little Satanist synagogues ticked around. It's saying that that's whose work they're actually doing. That's whom they're actually serving. Satan, the one who fell like fire from the heavens as the gospel was proclaimed by the 72 when Jesus sent them out. Satan, who was dealt the death blow in the resurrection. Satan, who has lost. And whose day of doom is coming. Friends, If you want to stand with the God who speaks, you do not stand unopposed. You will not stand unopposed. You join in the company of all the other Christians who have faced grief and struggle and striving because they have stood with Jesus. They've stood by the word of God. But the opponent, the one who is behind all the rage and the hostility, is defeated. And ultimately, the bad news is all on him. That's why Paul can finish such a picture with a word of joy. What is our hope, our joy? or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. The Apostle Paul knew so well that Jesus he proclaimed as crucified and risen was returning, and in his return there would be no more hostility. The King of Kings would brook no challenge. The kingdom of God in all of its glory and of all of its fullness will be in place. And in the presence of the Lord Jesus, when he comes. Well, says Paul, I stand with joy and hope, with a crown of glory. And the astounding thing is he says to the Thessalonians, and it's you. You're our glory. You're our joy. As we've proclaimed that word and you've heard it and received it and responded to it, you're our glory and our joy. Friends, I want to say sometimes as Christians, because we are broken people, because we are sinful people, we can get this funny picture in our heads that God looks at us with a sort of disappointed sigh. Oh. Again, seriously, what a disappointment they are. Say here, to a church who believed, who received the word of God, who took their stand on it. Yes, with all of their faults and their failures and their falling overs. Paul says, you're our glory and our joy. Not because you're magnificent christians not because you do incredible things not because you've done some amazing work not because you've started some huge multinational church but because you heard the word of god you received it as the word of god you took your stand on the word of god and you endure for the word of god for that says paul you are our glory and our joy friends The Thessalonians were told that their their great privilege was to imitate the church in Judea. Can I say that the great privilege of Southside is to imitate the Thessalonians? (laughs) Isn't it? We stand in the line of all those faithful who's gone before us. Can I encourage you to do three things? Number one, dig deep. Hear the word of God as the word of God, his powerful transforming word. Get it off your shelves and get dig deep. Wrestle. Ponder. Argue with God about what is written there. Try and understand it. Ask questions. Dig deep. Dig deep and hold fast. It's always going to be hard. Anybody who tells you that the Christians are the easy road. What's that wonderful line from the Princess Bride? Life is pain. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something. Kind of want to change it. Christianity is opposed. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something. Hold fast. Because the Word of God is worth holding fast to. Dig deep. Hold fast. And speak up. So that others too. Can hear the word of God. Be transformed by the word of God. And like you. Take their stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you for the incredible message of Jesus Christ. Crucified and risen. The one who reigned, who conquered by his own blood. The one who brings forgiveness and restoration. The one whose saving work changes the song of heaven. Lord, we thank you that we can rest confident in the truth Of your word in the gospel. Help us to be a people who dig deep. Who read your word. Who ponder your word. Help us to be a people who hold fast. Not move from the hope that you have held out to us. Help us to be a people who speak up. Longing to see Others, transformed as you have transformed us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.